we're doing this series on the goodness of the gospel, and today I have this word that I'm, I've been asked to talk about, salvation, and it's to help us understand how good it is to be a Christian and how amazing it is to know God. And so we're going to be looking at this word today. Now, um, just put up the, the next picture, please, uh, Alex. Anybody remember this film? Oh, yeah, it worked. Wow. So I thought, right, last week, Nathaniel Smith, he used a Bob Dylan album from the 1980s as a modern-day illustration of a point he was making. And I thought, good on you, because I thought Nat is much younger and cooler than me. So I thought, if he can do that, I can get away with using the Shawshank Redemption, which was a film back in the 90s, I think. Uh, so if, you're, if you remember when it came out, then that's how old you are, right? So the, the, the guy there on the, on the left, Andy, he's in prison in the film for a crime he didn't commit, but he's there for life. But he makes a plan to escape, to tunnel out of prison. And the governor, uh, this guy here, he gets wind of it, and he comes and turns over his cell one day looking for evidence to see if this guy is going to escape. And they turn everything over. They can't find anything at all. But Andy is stood in the middle of his cell, the prisoner. He's clutching his Bible. And the governor comes to him and says, um, and, he's, and, he, and he, 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 he takes the Bible and he says, uh, Andy, you should read this. Salvation lies therein. And then uh, the picture just tells you exactly what was in that Bible. It was a small pickaxe with which he was going to tunnel out of the prison. So at the end of the film, you, you discover that he, he's made his escape. Now, if only today we would open our Bibles and discover the power of this word, salvation. And that's what we're going to do over this next few minutes together. Now, I have to, have to say, basically, the whole of the Bible is about salvation from beginning to end. It's a story about salvation. So, in fact, theologians call the study of salvation soteriology, if you're interested in a long word. So we're only going to do about half an hour today. So if you feel like I leave a few sort of things untouched, that'll be why. But I'm going to cover as much as I possibly can in the next half an hour together. So more than that, when we open the Bible, we're not just going to discover a word, we're going to discover a person. Because, do you know, there's a person in the Bible we meet whose name means salvation, who means saviour. Do you know who that is? It's Jesus. His name means that. And when we study this word and when we study this idea, we actually get to meet him. And what you find is this, that there was a woman who poured perfume on his feet and he says, your faith has saved you. And there's a, a tax collector called Zacchaeus who's a pretty evil character. And he says, salvation has come to your house, Zacchaeus. And there's a thief on a cross next to him when he's dying. And he invites him to share eternity with him. Jesus brings salvation. And we're going to meet him today by his spirit as we look at these verses. So it's time to open our Bibles. You ready? Okay, Romans chapter 1, verse 16 is where we're going to start. The Apostle Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings Salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, his people, and then to everybody, the Gentiles. The gospel, first thing to note, the gospel brings this thing called salvation. That's where we get it. If you're looking for salvation, you look at this good news of Jesus. 
Here's the second thing I just want you to quickly know is this, that, that the, the Apostle Paul found this salvation that was found in the gospel a source of amazing confidence to share it with other people. So it might surprise you that Paul might say that. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. You think, well, why would he be ashamed of it? Strange things. It's good news, isn't it? But, you know, Paul in the first century, he had plenty of reasons to feel ashamed. He was an eminent Jewish rabbi. And he spent the rest of his life telling people to follow what other people thought was a dead, beaten up, half-naked rabbi hanging on a cross. And he said to everybody, follow him, guys. And everybody thought, this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous that, that we should follow a dead person. It wasn't what first century, powerful, credible leadership looked like, to die on a cross for people. Now, that's not our battle for being ashamed. You know, everybody knows that Jesus died on a cross. In fact, even in terms of powerful, credible leadership, if you go to any leadership seminar, secular or not, they'll say things like this. They'll say really profound things like, you know, the best kind of leadership is kind of empowering leadership. It's leadership that kind of serves the people that you, that you kind of care for. And people are like, wow, I love that. Where did they get these ideas from? People love humble leadership. Well, where did they get that from? Well, Jesus, okay? That's not our battle for feeling ashamed. Perhaps our battle in our culture today is some of the things that are taught in the Bible around discipleship. Perhaps some of the big issues of the day around sexuality and marriage and singleness. Perhaps those are the things that make us just feel a little awkward about sharing the good news of Jesus, Perhaps it's what other Christians say and being associated with them sometimes. And we think, oh, I'm just a little embarrassed. Well, do you know, you, can't find, you can find confidence in the gospel today in the same place where the Apostle Paul found it. And it's by discovering the power of this word, salvation. Are you ready? So salvation, it has the sense of, of being rescued, of being saved, something that is lost being retrieved. Um, ironically, I uh, was writing this message this week. I spent a good couple of days on it. I went to print it out yesterday, and lo and behold, it was lost because I had not saved it. <laughs> and before people queue up afterwards and tell me how you can also recover files, I tried everything, right? <laughs> It was gone. I had to rewrite. The rewrite was better than the original. Don't worry. So um, it has the sense of being safe. Do you know, if, if you are lost in a disaster zone somewhere and you put Facebook on, it will pop up with a message to say, mark yourself as safe. Tell your loved ones you are okay. And you can just press the button and it notifies all your Facebook contacts to say, I'm okay. I'm safe. Safety. Rescue. In the Old Testament, the first use of the word salvation happens when the people of Israel, we've heard about it today, when the people of Israel cross the Red Sea and they're being chased by the Egyptian army with their chariots and their swords and they're gaining on them by the second. And can you imagine these hundreds of thousands of Israelites crossing the Red Sea? And can you imagine being the poor person who's left at the back? It's probably a mum with a toddler, isn't it? A toddler who's just taking interest in that stone, saying, let's just, no, 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 can't move on until we've picked up the stone. No, and, and anything, the Egyptians are coming, and they literally just make it out of the water, and then the waters roll back over, 
and all of their enemies are dealt with. Done, destroyed. The enemy's power has been taken and dealt with. When all seemed to be lost, God saved them from their powerful enemy. For us to understand the idea of Jesus saving us from our sins, we need to understand that sin isn't just a random list of things that God doesn't like that can be erased. That's part of salvation. It's to understand that sin is this powerful enemy, this powerful force that has overtaken the human race and it has changed everything of what we know and experience humanity to be. And Jesus came to set things right. He came to deal with the penalty of sin, to deal with the power of sin, and to deal with the pollution of sin in our lives. The starting point for salvation isn't simply my life and what has gone wrong in it, and Jesus making it a bit better. It's to understand who God made us to be. So, If we're going to understand salvation, we need to understand the start point for the human race. So we need to go right back to the beginning. That was the song they sang as they crossed the the, the Red after the Red Sea. They said, He's my strength and my song, he's become my salvation. But let's go back to Genesis chapter one. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I want you to just imagine with me for a moment. Right now, in the world we live, I want you to imagine this. Imagine something different. Imagine a world where there was no war, where there was no machines of war, there was no dictators, there was no nuclear weapons. Imagine a world where there was no hatred or misunderstanding, where skin color or country of birth didn't dictate outcomes in life. Imagine a world where there was no war between the sexes, where dignity and equality were the norm, not rights to be fought for. Imagine a world where there was no famine or earthquake or natural disaster. Imagine a world where there was nothing to feel anxious about because it was an inherently safe place. Imagine a world where there's enough food to eat, where, there wasn't, where wealth wasn't hoarded by a few, but everyone had equal opportunity, where work was not frustrating, where you weren't counting down your days to your next holiday. A world where you can leave your door unlocked and nobody will steal your stuff. Imagine a world where a woman can walk home in the dark without fear. Imagine a world where parents don't fret about the influences on their children and teenagers. Imagine a world where human identity isn't a source of confusion and pain, but where people live in confident understanding of who they are and what their purpose is. A place where minds and bodies are healthy And grieving is unknown because death never happens. Imagine a world. That's what we had. That's what we had. And we lost it. We lost it all. That's what our ancestors, that's what the first man and the first woman had in a garden called Eden. And they lost all of that as a result of this thing called sin. It was disobedience to God. It was rebellion to God. And we need to see that as the starting point 
for what God does when he saves us. You know, Edinburgh is a beautiful city, isn't it? It's probably ranked as top 20 in the world, something like that. Nobody's disputing that with me. Okay, so it's ranked top 20 because people rank it compared with other cities that are less nice. Am I right? So somewhere like Milton Keynes or something is probably lower down the list. (laughs) I've said that because apparently people in Milton Keynes are disproportionately happy in their life, apparently. But, But there's a ranking system where somebody says, well, this is nicer than this place. Do you know, if you were to compare our beautiful city of Edinburgh and all we love about it with Eden... It would be like the ruins of a war-torn city, flattened, where somebody said, what on earth happened here? That's how far we have fallen from God's intention and plan for the human race. So when we look at salvation, we're looking at where we have fallen from. So let's take a few minutes to see six things that were true of the Garden of Eden, which the human race has fallen from. You ready? I'm going to use a whiteboard because... I'm kind of pretty modern like this. Um, and there's, there's things coming on the screen and on the thing. So it's going to be a bit chaotic, but here we go. Here's, here's the first thing we read in Genesis 1. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Here's the first thing about Eden. Purpose. God-given purpose. Okay. My writing is not brilliant, but we were made with the imprint of God in our lives. We are the most godlike creatures in all of creation. And in the creation narrative, we read that God speaks, he rules, and he relates. And he makes human beings able to do those same things, to communicate, to show loving rulership and care, with the unique capacity to relate to one another and to God. The psalmist in Psalm 8, he reflects on it, he says, Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth? He says, you have crowned human beings with your glory and honor. That's what God made us to be, to be reflectors of his glory. That's our purpose. He gave us a commission. We lost it. Romans 1.22 says that we exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. We substituted God-given purpose for, we could call it self-purpose, self-ID. Here we have, this is Eden, this is Edinburgh, 2023. We say, we don't want God's given purpose. We want to make it up. The result is confusion. Nobody quite agrees if the human race has a purpose or what it is. We've lost our sense of destiny, our sense of purpose. Every human being still bears the image of God, but it's distorted badly through sin. Here's the second thing that they enjoyed in the Garden of Eden. They enjoyed freedom. Remarkable freedom. Here's a strange verse for you. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. What a strange thing to say. From our fallen position, we think, well, that just sounds weird. That sounds strange. 
But let's just think about that for a moment. They lived in a world where they didn't care what anybody else thought about them. They lived with remarkable freedom from any sense of shame or any sense of condemnation or guilt. They didn't care. When God, after they'd sinned, and they became self-aware, it says they sowed fig, fig leaves for themselves and they hid themselves from God and from one another. And God asked them the question, he said, well, who told you you were naked? And the answer was nobody. They just became aware, aware of their shame, aware of their sin, aware of their failing. Wow, it's one unhappy kid. Their fallen self suddenly started to process the world from the point of view of how they looked and how they came across. Freedom, gone. Replaced with an obsession about shame and guilt and dealing with those feelings all of the time. Here's the third thing that they experienced in the perfection of Eden. They were close to God. It says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They heard the sound. This was a sound they were clearly familiar with. This implies that the creator used to walk with his created day in, day out. That he'd be there with them. At the end of a day at work, he'd say, how was that, Adam? Did you enjoy it? How about you, Eve? Have you enjoyed the beauty? of it? What have you eaten today? What, what's, what are you enjoying about this beautiful garden? The creator of the world conversing with his created in friendship and love. That's what we were made for. In fact, theologians, they point to the fact that the idea of God walking, it expresses an element of, of humanity that, Clearly, we think, well, God is spirit. How can the spirit walk? And some theologians say, well, this is perhaps evidence of the pre-incarnate Son of God coming to earth long before he became a human being, as we know, in the person of Jesus, him coming to his earth. And in his, in, 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 in his human projection, being able to walk and relate to us as we would relate to one another. And they fall from intimacy. Their sin means a close relationship with their perfect holy creator is no longer possible. And we read in Genesis 3, verse 23, that the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden. Here's Edinburgh. We're distant from God. Here's the fourth thing that they enjoyed in Eden. Um, Healthy human relationships. Adam's clear excitement at meeting the only other human in the garden is expressed in his love song to her when he says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. They get on like a house on fire. The creation was characterized by people who deeply understood one another. There was no conflict. They fall from healthy human relationships. And they fall 
into um, they, they, they fall into uh, uh, what's the word I was going to use? Uh, ah, it's gone. It was there. It was there yesterday. I'm sure it was. Um, I forgot to save it. This, this is the problem, isn't it? We'll come back to that word in a second. Um, uh, we, uh, they break down. Breakdown is the word. That's our experience of relationships. We experience relationships that go wrong in our world. Here's, well, before we move on to the fifth, that, that is furthered by the effect of the curse that God brings on the human race as a result of sin. That, that relationships become manipulative and abusive, not just between a husband and wife, but where relationships go wrong. It's, it's all to do with people taking advantage of one another or abusing one another. Distorted, abusive, manipulative power play at work. Here's the fifth. They enjoyed peace. It was a world without conflict. The serpent was a created being that they had authority over. They didn't have to listen to his ideas. But they fall from peace into conflict. And we have the problem of evil in the world. The problem of evil starts here. And the relationship between Eve's descendants and the serpent is defined in Genesis 3.15 where God says that uh, Eve's descendant will crush Satan's head and he will strike his heel. Referring to Jesus, but more, more, more thoroughly to the human race, that here's the relationship that Satan has with the human race. He bites at our heels all of the time. He's there causing conflict, causing dissent in the human race. The problem of evil starts here. And here's the last one. Enjoyed eternal life. There was a tree planted. Next slide, please. Tree planted in the middle of the garden. The tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. God said, don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You can have the other one. There's no evidence they ever, ever ate from it. Isn't that funny? But they never ate from the tree of life, which would have given them eternal life. A tree where health and wholeness were available to eat for free 24-7. A place where we were designed to enjoy God and each other and his creation forever. Instead of eating of that tree, they fall into a life characterized by death. Physical death. Spiritual death. And the results of spiritual death. Ephesians 2 says that, that, that we are spiritually dead and therefore we are objects of God's righteous justice for sin, his wrath, his right anger against all that is wrong, all as a result of the fall, fallen from purpose to self-identification, uh, falling from freedom to shame and guilt, falling from being close to God to being distant from God, falling from healthy human relationships to breakdown in relationships, falling from peace to a world full of conflict, falling from an experience of eternal life to a life where we 
all experience death and its consequences. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is the human experience. This is where we are. Now, the story of Israel is a long, winding story of people who, even though they are favoured by God, they can never, ever restore this. 400 years passes after the Old Testament, and things are pretty low. Until a baby is born into the world. And it's said of him, you should call him Jesus, for he will save people from their sins. And there's an old man called Simeon who holds that baby in his hands. And he says, my eyes have seen your salvation. We don't have time to talk about the whole life of Jesus. But we do know that he said it was his mission to seek and save the lost. We don't have time to unpack the fullness of what happened on the cross. But we do know that in Romans 5 verse 9, the Apostle Paul summarized it this way, that since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? God's right justice against sin dealt with at the cross. So let's ask this question in these last few minutes together. How does Jesus save us from our lost state? If we are lost and Jesus saves, what does it look like for us to be saved? Here's number one. He restores us to our purpose. He restores us into his image, gradually now and perfectly one day. I love this translation of Ephesians 1 verse 11. It says, it is in Christ that we find out who we are and what we are living for. More than that, the Bible promises that one day, it says, just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, that's Adam, the human race, so one day we shall bear the image of the heavenly man. One day you will look fully like Jesus in your character, just as God made you to be. Here's the second thing he does. And by the way, all of these things, they're not just a restoration to Eden, Eden, they're actually an upgrade on Eden. Isn't that amazing? There's an old hymn writer who says, in, him the tri- in Jesus, in him the tribes of Adam boast more blessings than their father lost. Each of these is an upgrade. Here's the second one. Jesus takes our shame and removes our sin. The Bible says, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, and the new is here. Shame gone. Your failing is replaced with his forgiveness. Here's the third thing that happens through Jesus saving us. He saves us from distance with God by coming close. In fact, he doesn't just come close, he comes and lives within. It says, Uh, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He lives in you. This is what it looks like to be saved. God living in you. Here's the fourth thing. Broken human relationships are restored, primarily by building people into this new thing called the family of God. He makes us companions, brothers and sisters together. It's a work in progress. One day that will be complete. Ephesians 1 verse 5. 
It says, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do and gave him great pleasure. He's made us family. Fifthly, he deals with the issue of Satan, the issue of conflict. He crushes the enemy, Satan, and promises his people victory. Colossians 2.15 says, He disarmed the power and authorities, and he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Satan dealt with. Now, there's an ongoing work there. It, it, Paul says in Romans 15, he says, The Lord shall soon crush Satan under your feet. Life is bruising sometimes, but there's a promise to be taken. And lastly, he, does the, he undoes the power of death, physical death, spiritual death, eternal death. He undoes it through his gift of eternal life. And the Bible says we don't grieve like the rest of people who have no hope because we hear the call of one who on the throne says, I am making everything new. So let me ask you the question today. Are, are you saved? Are you saved? And if I was to give you a minute to think about it, I'm not going to ask you for a show of hands. But I imagine for some of us here, it would be like, well, yeah, no, I, th I think I'm saved. But then when you begin to look through all of those things, you think, well, I am I'm saved because Jesus saved me. But I, I'm, I'm not sure I would say I'm 100% on all of these things. I live in peace all of the time. All my relationships are brilliant all of the time. That I feel so close to God all of the time. That my purpose is just so crystal clear. Some of us find those things confusing at times. So what does this all mean? Well, it will really, really help you to know that the Bible, the New Testament, when it talks about salvation, it doesn't talk about it in just one tense. It doesn't just say, well, this all happened for you when you became a Christian. The promise began then that all of these things will happen for you. But he gives us a present and a future to help us understand the struggle and the hope, as well as what is already true. So here, here for example, Ephesians 2, for it is by grace that you have been saved. What's that? Past tense. It's done. Can you say today, I am saved? Yes, you can, by faith in Jesus. You can say, it's done. He has saved me. In fact, the very fact that you mean that, that you can say that, means that the second and third of these will also be true for you. Because he's begun a good work in you. Here's the second one. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are, who are being saved. Oh, this is happening for you right now. We are being saved. It's an active thing. It's not all in the past. It's something that goes out working in your life. That's why there's a struggle. But do you know who wins in the struggle? The God who has saved you and is saving you and will save you. A fight. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. But it's future. It's a hope to rejoice in. It's a final undoing of all that is wrong. Our prayer lives may feel distant at times. We may struggle with shame. You may not always enjoy your job. We may have bruising battles with our enemy. 
We may have poorly bodies and minds. We may limp through this life into eternal life. But here's the good news. Salvation is coming. It's coming. It's coming. And it certainly will happen. There's one time when a a blind beggar was shouting out for Jesus to come and help him. And Jesus stopped. And somebody shouted to him, said, get on your feet. He's coming. It's a time of hope. When we understand salvation is coming, we're saying that Jesus is coming and he's going to right every wrong. Salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. But let's talk about this future hope, this future salvation in one other way. Because the Bible says that we'll all face judgment before God. Every human being will face the right justice of God against sin. And I'm quite relieved about that because Vladimir Putin's going to be there. Mao Zedong's going to be there. Some of the people we like are going to be there. In fact, everybody's going to be there. Queen Elizabeth's going to be there. Laura Koonsberg's going to be there. Nicholas Sturgeon's going to be there. Bill Gates is going to be there. A child from a slum in India is going to be there. You're going to be there, and I'm going to be there. And we're going to face judgment. And he'll hold us to account with righteous justice for all that has been done wrong. It's going to be a terrifying day. But then picture that scene. Then you just see an angel coming through the crowd and he's handing out t-shirts. And he's being selective and he's, he's going to one and not another. And he gives you one. And you look at it and you put it on. It says safe. Safe. And then, I mean, I wouldn't want to entrust judgment in the world to anybody other than Jesus because we know what he's like and we know how amazing he is. There's going to be nobody who's going to judge more fairly than Jesus. But he says, all wearing the white shirts, come out to one side because you're not going to get judged for your sin because Jesus has already been judged for your sin on the cross. Christians do face a judgment, but it's a judgment of rewards. What a wonderful hope in a terrifying day that we can say with confidence that I am saved. I'm safe, marked as safe. But let me ask you a couple of questions today. If you're a believer in Jesus here today, are you growing in your love and understanding of God saving you? He has saved you. He will save you. He is working out salvation in your life. In your struggle right now, heed the words of the Apostle Paul to continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for God is at work in you to fulfill his good purpose. The Apostle Peter said this, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. 
is an invitation for us to grow up, to grow up in our salvation. When we understand these truths, it should make our hearts sing for joy and delight. Some of us settle for a a very uh, simple understanding of the truth of the gospel, and that's enough to save you, but understand its depths and its wonder today. But it could be that you're not yet a believer in Jesus today. And it could be you're saying, well, how can I be? How do I get saved? And it could be there's a process of going on a course and finding out more. Many of us start from a very far away place. And that's good to do those things. But if I was to express it in a sentence, I couldn't do it better than the Apostle Paul, who in Romans 10 said this, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's as simple as that. Confess Jesus and believe in him. And you'll be saved. Safe. Protected by him in this life. Safe in eternity. New purpose. New freedom. New proximity to God. Healthier human relationships. Peace and eternal life to come. And it's all yours as a free gift through Jesus. If you want it today... I would love to chat to you afterwards or chat to Chris or Jen or somebody who brought you. We would love to lead you in that place today. Let's sing together. I don't know if there are some people in here who are just thinking, I'm not good enough. And I was reflecting during the week about the way Jesus was when he was on earth and the people that he had real problems with, with the Pharisees, who thought that they were good enough. They thought, yeah, I've done it right. I'm on the right path. I am good enough. I can, I can receive this salvation. But actually, like Dan was saying about the people who Jesus told, they were saved. They were the ones who knew that they weren't good enough. They were the ones who knew, I'm not worthy of this. So if you're sat here thinking, this all sounds great, but I'm not good enough for it, that is exactly the position your heart needs to be in. That's the position all our hearts need to be in. That's why it's grace. It's because none of us are good enough, but Jesus extends the welcome to salvation because you know in your heart you're not good enough, but God's is good enough.